thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a topic-based episode for you. Today's topic is race course specificity where I'm gonna break down how important is it to train on the type of course you're gonna race on, or the way I like to look at it maybe is how important is it amongst other things so you can know what sacrifices are worth making to get on terrain specific to the course that you're gonna be on versus staying closer to home and running on whatever's local to you. So before we get going with that, just a couple quick announcements. One is if you want to enter a raffle to do a consultation with me, I have an option for you. All you got to do is share this or any other episode that you enjoy on social media platforms and tag me. Make sure you tag me so that I know that you did it. Otherwise, I can't enter you into the raffle. But all you got to really do is once you listen to an episode that you like, share it on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Actually, I haven't mentioned this one in the past, but someone just did it and I should mention it. Strava, where we log all our running. <laughs> so yeah, just if, if you tag me though, or if you do it, just make sure you tag me so I see it. If you're going to do it in something like a story that's going to expire sooner rather than later and you're afraid I'm not going to see it, then feel free to screenshot it and send it to me in email format at hbopodcast.gmail.com. I just want to make sure if you're going through that effort of helping me spread the word about episodes, I enter you into that raffle to win a 30-minute consultation. Thanks to everyone who's done that so far. It's been great. I love to see that stuff pop up, and I like to reshare it on, on my social media channels when I, when I get a chance as well. So I appreciate all the people who've participated in that so far. What I've been doing, for those who are new to it, is at the end of each month, I take all the people who entered through that process, and I just draw a random raffle and announce at the beginning of the month. Also, if you're interested in the show catalog and kind of everything that goes into things, there's a landing page for that. It's zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. From there, you can access things like the show Patreon page if you want to support the show and get access to ad-free, intro-free versions of the podcast. And then also just other support options there as well as, like I said, the catalog of all the prior episodes. Also, along with the new podcast studio, another thing that I am launching is full show transcripts. So if you want to see written out what I covered on the podcast word for word, you can access that now and it is actually on the episode landing page. So if you go to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO, that gives you a list of all the episodes. From there, if you click on that, you get the show notes and the details and everything, all the links I mentioned and that stuff. If you keep scrolling down, you get the full show transcript. So some people like that, I think, because if there's a specific topic that was mentioned during the show and they want to go back and see exactly what was said or get a reminder of that, you can just search that transcript and find it and spot check it versus kind of digging through an audio clip to try to find it. So hopefully that's valuable for some people. But I'm going to keep putting it up there on those show landing pages for those of you who are interested in it. Also, if you want to meet up in person, I do host or co-host, I should say, a group run on Sunday mornings here in Austin, Texas. So if you're visiting or you're local to Austin, come stop by. We meet at Metz Park. Currently, most people are coming at 8 a.m. due to the summer heat, but usually once it cools off, people start shifting to the 9 a.m. option that we also have. I usually do both when I'm in town, so uh, it's a four-mile and a six-mile and a two-mile. Nice, easy recovery miles, so all paces, all people welcome. Come chat, hang out for a bit. You can find details on that on their Instagram page, which is at outliersatx. Two 
supporters of this show this year are Element Electrolytes and Delta G Ketones. Element is my electrolyte of choice and one of my primary supporters of HPO. If you go to drinklmnt.com forward slash HPO, you can get a free sample pack with your first purchase, which includes citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw and flavored. They boast 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium. Best thing is if you buy some and you don't like it, they will give you your money back. No questions back. Don't got to send back the box or anything. So they believe their product is going to satisfy and they offer that safety valve for you. If you're hesitant about giving it a shot, if you want to hear my full protocol with them, I have that at the end of the episode. So once the episode's over, stick around, I'll go through the full protocol of how I use element electrolytes, where they fit, how I decide the quantities and things like that. And then you can also find some details on some previous podcast episodes where I dive into hydration and electrolytes. Delta G ketones is the original ketone ester out of Oxford University through the work of Professor Kieran Clark, who has been a critical part of exogenous ketone research and formulation. They received the DARPA grant in effort to design a formula for special forces. Since then, Delta G has produced 50 plus published studies and are part of 20 plus ongoing studies. Check out Delta G's research and product line at deltagketones.com. That's deltagketones.com. There you can sign up for a free consultation and dive into the research, the usage, and find out whether your lifestyle is something that could benefit from something like this. Just like the Element Electrolytes, I also have my protocol with Delta G Ketones highlighted post show. So again, stick around after the show if you want to hear that broken down. I actually got interested in recording a podcast on this topic after following all the events at this year's Ultra Trail Mont Blanc. The whole series of events to be honest with you, but you know, the featured event is their 100 plus roughly 100 mile event that is fairly unarguably the most competitive trail 100 miler the world offers at the moment so it just gets a lot of attention it's very well covered they have next level video feed and inter-race information for those following so if you really want to get into the sport of ultra marathon running and follow runners throughout the day it's a next level experience because i mean they have things that are as intimate as interviewing at aid stations the crew members of the the participants watching the runners come through those aid stations and sometimes even catching the dialogue between them and their crew and really kind of following the race as close as you can be for something that is essentially out in the wilderness running around for what ends up being 19 plus hours uh, for whomever you are following but you know that's the fastest you see finishers finishing so it's a long time to be paying attention to stuff so the level of content that is required to make it engaging is just really, really extensive. So they do a great job of showcasing all that and it hooks you in. And the thing about it this year that got me interested in race course specificity were some of the storylines coming into the event itself. So here in the United States, there were essentially two big storylines going into this year's race. And those were Jim Walmsley on the men's side, where Jim... Uh, decided that in order to win the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, it was going to be in his best interest to move out to France, be able to train like the European champions of past in the mountains on the course specific to that and actually even work with, uh, or I shouldn't say work with, but train with the 
prior champions, more or less. So it was a topic of conversation because Jim is a great ultra runner. I mean, he's won the Western States 100 three times in a row. He's got the course record there. He is uh, likely going to be considered by most the most dominant trail ultra runner in North America and in some cases in the world. And he had this sort of monkey on his back, so to speak, with the ultra trail Mont Blanc not being able to win it, having had some races where by all metrics, solid performances as far as race results go. But for someone who the expectation is to win, if not break a course record, you know, falling short of where his full potential really was at. So it became a storyline because last year he had already moved out there and prepared for the race itself in that similar format, living in France and had a rough end of the race and fell back uh, after being up front for good portions of the early stages. So the spotlight was on him to see kind of, will this pay off? Will he get that that UTMB win, and with that just became the topic of essentially, do you need to live on the course, which is maybe a bit of an extreme way to look at this particular topic, but loosely speaking, how important is actually preparing for the course that you're going to be on specifically terrain-wise versus, say, just training wherever you have access to and hoping for the best, I guess is maybe one way to put it. But generally speaking, when I think about this topic, it's less about whether course specificity is needed or not needed. It's more about a question to me is like, I think getting on course specific terrain is going to be a value add. It's hard to argue against that. It's hard to argue against there being an advantage to preparing on the exact terrain that you're going to actually compete on. I mean, it would be like saying, oh, yeah, it doesn't really matter if you practice basketball on an outdoor court versus an indoor court, yet you're going to play all your games on the indoor court or vice versa. It's sort of like that. It's like, yeah, it's going to be better to be on that terrain that's specific, all else held equal. But sometimes I think that this topic gets almost too much traction where people put too much emphasis on it to the degree that they make sacrifices in their training in order to try to get that sort of an experience when there are much bigger things that they could be considering. And you have to be looking at these things as an opportunity cost because most people aren't going to be like Jim where you've checked all those other boxes And now it's just like finding these really fine details that you can still manipulate for him. One of those was actually moving out to France, training right on the course and training with former champions. So it's uh, it's it's a really interesting topic I'm going to dive into. So people listening to this who are training for an ultra marathon can sort of weigh the pros and cons behind the, you know, how much effort you should put into trying to say, get out to the mountains if you're not living close to them, but you have a race that's coming up to that and how you should look at that in your training. But back to the storylines too, just a little bit more. One of the things that kind of made it really interesting was Jim went on to win. He won UTMB, uh, awesome story to follow. And the really interesting thing about it was that made him the first American male to win the Alta Trail Mont Blanc. And that was something that was been a storyline for years now along the sport as well. But the kind of secondary story along with that was the second place finisher who was leading for a portion of the day and wasn't too far behind Jim was Zach Miller, also an American male. So the U.S. went one, two this year, and it was kind of a big step, I think, for U.S.-based ultra runners for that particular course, showing that they can, you know, arrive on the, pod- on the top of the podium, but 
even had Jim faltered, Zach would have still claimed that that first time uh, type of experience. So what made it further interesting for this topic was Zach didn't move out to France and had Jim faltered, he would have won. So we would have had an American male winning the Ultra Trail Mont Blanc without moving out there to train. Now, don't get me wrong. Zach trained about as specifically, I think, as one probably can and should without living out there year round. He did a lot of the things that you see a lot of the strong European mountain ultra runners do in training to prepare himself for it. And he periodized well, from what I can tell. I don't know his specific training, but the way he described things after the race made it sound like he did all the right things throughout the course of his year. And then finally peaking for the race to put himself in a position where he was going to be strong on that course. And if he executed properly, he was going to be a tough person to arrive to the finish line in front of. So I'm going to use those guys as examples, I think, to show like or highlight, I should say, kind of where I would put race course specificity into the plan in terms of the importance, more or less. One other quick story before we get going, I just have to mention, since we're talking about Ultra Trail Mont Blanc, is Courtney DeWalter. Courtney did something this year that is somewhat unthinkable in terms of how we view this sport, where she arrived at the Western States 100 and not only won, but broke a course record that was considered a very strong course record. It was one that was set on a year that it was about as cold as you're ever going to get it at Western States. And that's important because on hot years in Western States, it can get into the triple digits in the Canyon. So if you get a cooler year and it's not too unbearable in the high country in the early stages, you can move a lot quicker through those Canyon sections and then usually also move a lot faster than the last third of that course where it's much more runnable. And the record there was set on one of the cooler years by just a legend in the sport, Ellie Greenwood. So Courtney went there and broke the course record by over an hour, ran what would be considered a competitive male finishing time that year with 15 hours and or this year with 15 hours and 29 minutes. But she didn't stop there. She went out in less than three weeks, won and broke the course record at the Hard Rock 100 and then managed to recover and make her way out to Ultra Trail Mont Blanc and win that race as well. So in a matter of what ends up being just a shade over two months, she won three of the most iconic 100-milers, set course records on two of them. And the one that she didn't set a course record on was one that she has the course record on. So it was just a, you know, I have to give a shout-out to Courtney for being uh, such a champion in the sport and doing it in a way that I think is just great. Courtney's uh, one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. So uh, it's always fun to see her be successful and be able to compete at an international level the way she does. And obviously with this particular topic, you know, Courtney, I think would consider herself more of a trail mountain runner than anything and probably longer distance, the better type of a mindset. But those three courses are very unique to one another. So to be able to nail all three of them in that short of a time frame without kind of taking an off season and rebuilding your plan in a way that's going to best suit that course is going to be a challenge to get over. And she mastered it about as well as one could expect. So congratulations to Courtney. Congratulations to Jim. Congratulations to Zach. All three of you crushed it this year at UTMB, and I'm looking forward to see what you do next. But definitely take some much-needed recovery after that one. All right, so let's get into the topic at hand here. We have a situation where 
you had core specific training by all three of these people. So to argue that core specific training isn't important is kind of silly to me. The question really is how important is it and what sacrifices should you make for it? Or in other words, what should you make sure you have locked down solid and wrung out all the benefits from before you start getting overly worried or overly uh, emphasizing core specificity, especially if it adds a hurdle in your day-to-day life to get to. So the way I like to do this, I like to back up and go through things I think are more important or what are things that you should first really fine tune before you even start worrying about core specificity. So to me, the biggest value you're going to find in ultra marathon training and possibly even endurance training in general is a heavy, heavy emphasis on easy running, which I kind of break into two categories. I actually talk in detail about these two categories on episode 356, easy run simplified. And I talk about them within the context of training on a podcast episode I did called Endurance Training Simplified, which is episode 344. So if you're looking for more details on the topics I go over with some of these training intensities, I would suggest checking out that episode. I'll mention the other ones as we hit, the, hit on them throughout the course of this episode. But that specific kind of easy category is the foundation of where you should be spending the vast majority of your time and building up volume within it over not days, not weeks, not months, but years. And that's where you're going to see the most benefit in your training and racing is being able to get quality time spent at that. The reason I break that into two categories is it is a big category. So I think there's a difference between just going out on a really easy, comfortable recovery run versus kind of pushing up to the top end of that easy intensity, what I call base. Some people will call that like zone two or aerobic threshold. I think generally speaking, when you're thinking of the years that you're training, spending as much time as you can within reason in terms of what you have available to yourself and where you're currently at and what kind of stress load you can tolerate up kind of in that top end of that category is a great spot to sit. So just below that aerobic threshold. Then I think once you've been doing that for a while, and especially when you get to a point where you run out of time, which is going to be most people's situation, eventually you're going to get to a point where, hey, I'm running X number of hours per week. I can't add anymore without upsetting my family losing my job and start having all sorts of other consequences by doing more than what you have available to you. So I like to look at this as what are your non-negotiables? So first figure out what your non-negotiables are and then figure out how much time you actually have available and then strive to maximize your volume within that time frame because to plan for more is just going to be something where you're going to run up against things and you're not going to be consistent. And really you're looking for consistency within the amount of time you have available and then build your structure around that. So once you've hit that, the next session that I think is just going to really add a ton of value. And this is something where you can kind of think about where are you placing these type of workouts year round versus necessarily I only can do these a few times a year or in certain phases is what we call like threshold running or an intensity that I would define as something you could do for roughly 60 minutes in a race day setting. Sprinkling a little bit of that in along with some of these base miles or this easy running miles, 
you can go a long, long way with just those basic two intensities and really building the amount of volume you can tolerate with some of that threshold work sprinkled in is going to be the huge foundation that you're going to want to build anything that you do off of. And really, to be honest with you, if I had to tell you like these are, this is the simplest only thing you can ever do for training. I would be focusing on those two intensities and you're going to get the most value out of those versus trading either of those things, those two things out for something else. So be honest with yourself, come up with your non-negotiables, figure out how much time you actually have available, really, really fine tune that foundation of that easy running with a focus on base or aerobic threshold, and then sprinkle in some, some lactate threshold or the 60 minute type of intensity that that you could do on race day in there to kind of help move that along a little bit. And you're going to go a really, really long ways with that. If you're interested in more details about that lactate threshold intensity or that 60 minute race day one, I actually do have a podcast episode for that as well. And it's called long interval simplified simplified. And that's episode 348. Just, just a side note too. I will link those episodes into the show notes of this episode too. So that if you are interested in checking all of them out because there's a bunch of other ones that are maybe be interesting for people who haven't heard them that are trying to kind of structure things around. Those will be easy to access in the show notes. All right. So let's say we have an example or a situation now where you've really done a great job of maximizing the amount of volume you have available to you. You've sprinkled in some threshold work. Your fitness is really, really good relative to where it's been in the past, where if you go out for a run kind of at the high end of that easy category, that aerobic threshold, your pace is faster than it's ever been. And it's just great to see that time quicker than it usually was at that intensity. What do you do next? What's the next value add there before you start worrying about core specificity? I think some form of speed work development is going to be more important than that. So before you decide, I'm going to take this this foundation I just built and take it to the course that I'm going to race on and start fine tuning that and jumping over hurdles to get onto that stuff. If it's not close by to where you live, I I, I think you should go through some speed work development there. So that's just going to be a series where you're going to focus a little more heavily on that those long intervals that are tied to that threshold work that you've already started sprinkling in as long as some short intervals that are going to be more closely tied to your vo2 max so for those of you interested in the details around those short intervals i've got an episode on that one episode 346 short interval simplified where i go over the specifics of that and the intensity essentially i like a 12 maybe 15 minute race day intensity for those one-to-one work to rest ratio but really what you're going to do is you are going to add some of those in alongside or separate if you're doing a long enough race you can compartmentalize and do a block of training where you're focusing on short intervals and then maybe transitioning to a focus on long intervals and then transitioning to a phase of race intensity specific stuff if you want to do it that way but generally speaking a speed work development phase where that is kind of the priority and you're being maybe you're looking at it this way you're looking at i've got about as fit as i can in this period of time with volume at the lower intensity, I'm running out of actual time to add, or I've run out of time to add to that. Now it's time to do some speed work development to sort of pull that whole system up 
and you're going to get go a long ways with focus on long intervals and short intervals at those moderate to higher intensities and you're just going to probably need a lot more really easy runs in between those versus kind of base up to aerobic threshold type sessions in there in order to properly recover from them so you sort of have to be mindful of how your training load shifts because when you think about training load it's a combination of volume and intensity so when you change one of those you change your training load so you can in theory reduce your volume and increase your intensity and take on a larger training load and this is one thing where i find ultra runners maybe have to really think about because we get very fixated on workload being time spent out there because our races are a lot of time spent out there so you might go for a speed work session that's only 60 minutes or even less and take a huge training load from that session. But in your mind, you might be thinking, well, it wasn't a three hour long run. It wasn't a four hour long run. So you don't necessarily break it down that way in your head and you start trying to force things after that. So be very mindful about how much recovery your body requires from that speed work and let that side of the equation set in after those sessions so that you're not putting yourself in a situation where you're doing the work, but you're not getting the benefits because you're not giving yourself proper recovery from them because you get hung to a number of volume versus training load as a combination of volume and intensity. And that brings me into the next step, which is something that I think is something you should be thinking about and planning before you start getting overly fixated on race course specificity, and that is just recovery in general. And recovery, the first thing I lean towards is sleep. Sleep is where the majority of this is gonna happen. Generally speaking though, you do wanna make sure you have your stuff balanced out where, let's say you sit down and determine, I have 10 hours a week available to me to train, but you've only been training three hours per week at the moment, if you decide to ramp right up to 10 hours immediately without any buildup or jam a bunch of speed work into that 10 hours along with the lower intensity stuff that you're doing, you could easily put yourself in a position where despite the best sleep in the world, you're not going to recover from it. So be realistic as to where you're at and increase your volume and intensity gradually over time versus taking big jumps or trying to match what someone else is doing that they maybe have spent months or years developing versus what you've potentially done. So recovery is the next thing you want to optimize before you even get too overly concerned with race course specificity. Sleep is a huge component alongside just proper training load, starting where you're at and building up to that. The reason I mentioned sleep, I think people probably hear that like, well, no, duh. Like, yeah, of course, sleep is important. I need to get good sleep in order to maximize potential. The reason I say that isn't because I think you need to know that or hear that. What I want to say that is I don't think you should be putting yourself in a situation where you're continuously or consistently losing sleep in order to gain better race course specific conditions. And an example of that may be, let's say you do have really great core specific terrain, but it's a 90 minute drive from your house. So you decide I'm going to wake up at 3.30 in the morning, get out to that trail before work, do a run on it, and then drive all the way back and then go through the rest of my day. And you do that on a routine basis. And by doing that, you cost yourself two hours plus of sleep every day. That's going to catch up to you. And that's not going to be a value add you want. Like it doesn't matter that you're getting more time spent on that course. What you're losing in return for that in recovery and rest is going to far exceed that. So in your order of importance, place that rest and recovery above race course specificity. 
The next part is nutrition. So this kind of feeds in to both the performance side in terms of executing those workouts, the training even at low intensities, and the recovery side because it's going to be what fuels you and it's also going to be what helps you recover. So when you're thinking about nutrition, what I like to tell people when you're training for an ultra marathon, let's say you're doing something a little bit longer, like 100 miles or beyond, I think proper intake is going to far outweigh any macronutrient ratio type of things that you could get hung up on. Like, do I need more carbs, less carbs? Do I need more fat, less fat? Should I be strict keto? Should I be high carb? You know, all, all that other stuff. Like, I think that is all sort of second tier questions that you can ask yourself. The first one is getting proper intake. And that, that's obviously going to be different from one person to the next. Someone who is at a healthy body weight, one where they're racing great at, has no reason to lose weight, that's going to be a number they may need to chase. Meaning, you need to make sure you're getting enough in. And if you don't, you're going to see your performance suffer. And then it doesn't matter how creative you get with your macronutrients. It's going to be a no-go for you in terms of consistent long-term development if you're not getting that proper intake. Obviously, there's going to be people on the other end of that spectrum who are maybe using running to some degree to lose some weight, or they know that they can afford to lose some weight, in which case proper intake is going to be a little bit of a different starting point for them, at least anyway, in terms of what they want to be taking in to get to the spot where they want to become race day. I always do like to share in this particular thing, you should, whether it plays out this way or not for you, thinking of like conscious weight loss, meaning you're actively trying to lose X number of pounds or kilograms, you should see that as something that is at least somewhat counterintuitive to optimal performance. So if that's a goal you have, you're much better off focusing on that early in the season or early in the year when you're focusing on more lower intensity stuff and you're not into that speed work development phase or that peaking phase where you're going to be building out your long run and things like that, where you're going to want to be able to do things like practice your race day fueling strategy and stuff like that. So that's something where if you can get that squared away early before you get into like the real rigor of the training plan, you're going to be in a lot better spot so that now you can just focus purely on performance fueling versus having this dual goal that may be counterproductive towards performance, uh, depending on the situation. So Nutrition is important. The other thing I like to share, share with this is since personally I think the macro stuff is kind of secondary or something that it's, it's going to be individual to you in terms of what direction you go. And I think when we get to ultra marathon, that window is quite wide. So finding things like preferences and things you can be consistent with is probably more important, which is going to lead to that proper intake. I think the next thing, the one thing that you maybe do want to be mindful of to at least some degree is protein intake. So the reason I say this is because you can go too much with this, you can go too low with this, and neither of them are ideal. So what I like to tell folks is if you're looking for the maximum overall protein you would ever need, you're looking at about one gram per pound of goal body weight. So if you find yourself drastically below that, it may be in your best interest, regardless of what type of dietary practice you're going to follow to try to get closer to that number. Or if you're in the other situation, maybe you're getting way more than that. Maybe you're getting 2x that of protein. Well, you may be putting yourself in a position where you're telling your body, hey, some of the fuel I'm taking in is in excess for what its true role is in my body. And I'm going to make you go through extra steps to break that down and use it as a fuel source. So if you think of things like 
carbohydrates, fats, and proteins, if your body had to use those three things as fuel, it's going to be able to use carbohydrates the fastest, fats, fats the next fastest, and protein the, the, the slowest. It takes you a lot of energy for your body to break down protein and use it as a fuel source. So I get this question all the time. They'll talk about, oh, well, gluconeogenesis, I can eat protein and use it as a fuel source. Yeah, you can, but that's not something that you should be striving to do because it's it's just a, a, a rigorous process for your body to do. To the degree, I can have share an example that will highlight this. If you eat a carbohydrate or a fat, your body is going to use a very, very, very small amount of that to actually break that down and turn it into a fuel source. Like a couple percentages of it. Whereas you get up to protein, and you can get up to almost a quarter of that from a energy output standpoint required to break that down and use it. So you're asking your body to work a lot harder to break down and use that protein source So think about that when you're thinking about how you want to behave around that. So once you kind of hit what I would consider that maximum necessary amount of one gram per pound of body weight, approximately, you know, you should be mindful of how much beyond that you're getting if you find yourself kind of leaning towards protein from a preference standpoint. Uh, I just like running this stuff sometimes through an app called Chronometer or any of these online apps just to kind of get a ballpark figure of where you're really at so you can start kind of playing around and see if you're you know, anywhere near where you should be, or if there's something that you can easily just tweak a little bit here and there with some data that you can collect. And then from there, you can start building things out. All right. So we've went through kind of the biggest value with that easy running volume based stuff with some thresholds sprinkled in some speed work development, um, recovery, focusing on high quality sleep and not losing that in effort to seek out things that aren't as important like race course specific stuff paying attention to training load within that so that the work you're putting in is being maximized by proper recovery and then the nutrition side of things eventually you get to the point in your training where you're going to get very specific to the race you're actually doing and this is what i like to call the race intensity specific training so this is going to be varied by a large margin depending on what you're doing i've been talking a lot about ultra marathons for this episode so i'm sort of skewing things that direction which in which case would make long run development and lower intensity stuff more important during this phase of training versus say someone who's training for something shorter like a 5k or 10k in which case they're going to be doing a lot more short intervals a lot more race pace workouts that are pinned to their 5k 10k intensity and likely leaning more heavily still on even some of those long intervals during this phase of training versus trying to add more volume to their plan at that point so there is going to be a little bit of a different order of operations depending on what your goal race intensity is but if we stick to the theme of ultra marathon this is the time of year where you're really working on what exactly is it you're going to do on race day. So at this point, you've already established that strong foundation. You've already done the speed work development. You've already fine-tuned your rest and recovery balance between working out and recovering from it, got a good sleep schedule. You've already built out a lot of your nutrition protocol and things like that. And now you're kind of in the last phase of training where you're going to really start doing the things that you're going to actually do on race day. So... If there's a time to maybe do some sacrificing in terms of getting on the race course, this would be the time to really start taking those sacrifices or making those trade-offs. So the way to think about it is, and I talked to Pam Smith about this, who's won the Western States 100 and a whole host of other things where she would, she would just get to a phase of training where it's like, okay, now it's time to really start peaking for this race. And there are things I'm going to give up 
during this time frame in order to be able to do the things that I know are going to be helpful for me to sort of polish things off and be optimally ready for the race course. She's not looking at those as like, oh, I'll never get to do these things again. She's looking at it. This is a phase during the year and it's worth sacrificing some of these things in order to do that. So I think one of the examples she shared was she reads a lot of books. So during this phase of training, maybe instead of you know reading a book on the weekend, she's spending some of that time driving to an ideal workout location, doing a long run, and just spending a lot more time out there preparing for the race-specific stuff. And that's the way I like to look at it. So if you're going to start placing race course specificity into a cat, into a part of the training where it becomes a little more value, it's because the opportunity cost is a little lower this time of year for it because you've already done the speed work development. So it's not a training load question of do I do this long run on course specific train in exchange for a short interval session or a long interval session because at this point in training, that may be a fair trade-off to do. It likely is a fair trade-off to do in terms of what's going to actually get you to the course or to the finish line of the course the quickest so that's where i would place it i would say it's it's still not something that you need to do it's still not something where if you don't do it you're in trouble it's just a value add so where i think it becomes a little bit more nuanced is looking at the actual course so if you're running on say just a gradual rolling smooth trail versus running on the roads the value of doing course specific stuff in that situation is going to be much lower than say you're going out to a very steep technical mountain course where you might be doing steep technical downhill running. So there is going to be a spectrum of importance within this too, where when you start getting to things like this type of course actually requires a learned skill set, like technical downhill running. That may be something where in that particular situation, if you're not already competent at that or if that's a weakness for you, there's maybe some value in trying to seek that out earlier in the plan and working on those skills. But again, I don't think it's necessarily something that would be a value add if it's going to be a situation where you start sacrificing recovery, you start sacrificing your biggest value, which is those easy running and those threshold sessions and things like that. So I still think you want to be looking at it through that lens. It's just one of those things where you might, if you have access to it, find yourself looking to skew things more towards that and giving yourself some opportunities to practice that a little bit sooner in the plan so that you aren't taking a hit on a skill set versus something that's just like a conditioning side of the equation. All right. That is my overview of course specificity and where its importance lies amongst other things within the training perspective. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can reach out to me and share with me what you think and anything that I miss that you think I should touch on in future episodes or just other general questions and topics that you'd like me to touch on with this podcast as well as guest interviews and things of that nature. You can find me on the social media channels at Zach Bitter on Instagram, at Z Bitter on Twitter, at Z Bitter Endurance on Facebook. And you can shoot me an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com or head over to my website, zachbitter.com. Last summer, I actually did get my sweat tests done and found out that I lose 614 milligrams of electrolytes per liter of sweat. And it's just such an interesting thing to me because you have two things going on there. You have the actual electrolytes that you're losing per liter, and that's going to range greatly from one person to another. 
But then you actually have the amount of leaders you're actually losing. So that's going to vary from one season to the next. Like if I'm running in cold weather, I might lose very little. Whereas this time of year, I'm losing sometimes two liters per hour. So it makes a big difference from both the person to person as well as uh, environment to environment from a fluid loss standpoint. So the example I usually use is my wife, she loses closer to one gram per liter. So she loses more electrolytes than I do by over 50%. But if we went out for a run together in the same temperature, I'd probably lose more total electrolytes because I'm going to lose more total sweat than she is. Because if we just measured the amount of fluid loss between the two of us, I would lose substantially more than she would. Along the topics of electrolytes, Human Performance Outliers podcast, one of the primary sponsors this year is Element. And Element actually makes an electrolyte and they have these single serving packets that they sell in a variety of different flavors. Those flavors include citrus, watermelon, orange, grapefruit, raspberry, chocolate, mango chili, raw, unflavored. And they actually have a total of 1,260 milligrams of electrolytes. That's 1,000 milligrams of sodium, which is the primary electrolyte you're going to lose in your sweat, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. For those of you math people out there, you're probably thinking, oh, well, Zach's numbers and that it comes out to exactly half one of those packs per liter of fluid loss. And you would be right. What I usually do is if I'm using one of those full packets, I will mix it into about two liters worth of water if I'm trying to match that concentration. So an example of that, of what I'll usually do is if I'm doing something a little bit longer and it's going to be hot out, I'll usually do a half a packet in my coffee in the morning with that chocolate. And that kind of gets me like preloaded then I head out for the run itself. And if it's long enough where I'm going to be drinking a fair bit of fluids, you know, maybe I'm taking in two liters worth of fluid. I might mix a whole nother pack of that. Usually I'm going with watermelon for my intra run or my non warm beverage flavored option of choice right now. But uh, there's a bunch of those flavors that I mentioned. So if you're curious and checking them out, they're actually doing a promotion right now where human performance outliers listeners can get a free sample pack of all those flavors to check them out and find out if you like them or if you do which ones you like the best you get that with your first purchase and you get that by just going to drink forward slash hpo links to that will be in the show notes as well as at zachbetter.com forward slash hpo sponsors also supporting this show it's a product I've been playing around this year by a company called Delta G. Delta G is the go-to ketone ester company. The reason they're the go-to is because they do basically all the research. They are the ones with the DARPA funding. They're the ones that have the Oxford University research. They've got 50 plus published research studies, 20 plus ongoing studies, and they've had some really interesting stuff come out now. I've been following this topic for years now. In fact, I had Brianna Stubbs back on or I'm sorry, I had Branna Stubbs on the podcast years ago to talk about this. At that time, it was basically like, look, the performance stuff is, is new and not convincing enough to look at it from a, as a performance aid at this point in time, but recovery was looking very promising. Now we're starting to see some research that would maybe suggest there's some performance usage for it too. So I'm looking to have a few more guests come on the show to talk about just the topic as a whole of ketone esters because we're just seeing a lot more usage in it. I think a lot of people think of like the Tour de France when they think about that stuff, which is typically where a lot of stuff gets kind of introduced into endurance sport first because, well, there's just a lot of funding and research in, in the Tour de France. So uh, the the reason I've been using Delta Gs though is because their formulation is very specific towards the research versus 
what you're going to see in a market filled with all sorts of different ketone products that will likely claim the research, but they might not actually match their formulation to what the research is actually being done. And therefore, can't really expect to get the result that the research showed if you're not using what the research was actually using itself. And that's why I like Delta G. If you want to check their stuff out and figure out if it's something that you want to consider, they're actually doing free consultations on their website. So all you got to do is head over to deltagketones.com. And from there, you'll get prompted to sign up for a free consultation. You can talk to one of their experts about what you're doing and where the application might be. For me, it's pretty simple. If I'm doing a big workout, I'll take one of their Delta G performance options. So one of their little bottles of that for like a long run. So for example, this last weekend, I took one right before my two hour and 45 minute long run. And I was good. That's all I needed. If I were to do a race, I'd probably do another one of those every three hours or so. Uh, again, you can head to deltagketones.com to find out more information, look at the research and figure out whether it's something you'd be want to consider. And ultimately, if you want to have them help you dial in what would be a potential protocol for yourself, you can reach out for that free consultation there. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. 